Well, two weeks ago, we started digging into Acts chapter 14 that I told you is not just the halfway point in the book of Acts, but is a significant turning point in the book of Acts where we see that the gospel was never intended to be just for the Jews, but for all the nations. Because in the first 13 chapters, you need to realize, oh yeah, we've seen a lot of evangelism going on. But what you've actually seen are Jewish Christians going into the synagogues and talking to other people who already believe in God and the Bible, but just don't have the details of Jesus Christ. But what you see happen in Acts chapter 14, beginning of verse 8, is Christians for the first time trying to engage people who do not believe in the one true living God and know little or nothing about what the Bible says. Which I hope you realize is much more like our country today and the culture we're in. So there's so much we can learn from this chapter in how to engage a pagan culture that I told you two weeks ago when we jumped in, we're going to get a little bit and come back to it and get some more. So today's that more. So turn back to Acts chapter 14 in your Bible and you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Acts 14, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra... A certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes And ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, all things that are in them. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, 
They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went back into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So what can we learn? So what can we learn from these Christians in Acts 14? Well, if you did not hear the message two weeks ago, please go back and listen to it online. Because I already gave you two big takeaways from this chapter that I don't have time to repeat in detail. But let's just thump them. I said, number one. If you're going to make a difference and engage pagans today in our culture, you have to be absolutely clear that salvation is by grace alone and not works. That's what Luke is doing in verse 3 when he uses that phrase, the word of his grace. He's using that as a summary for the gospel. It's a word of God's grace. It's what God has done. Grace is being given something as a gift that you cannot earn, you cannot merit, you cannot achieve. We don't meet God halfway. God does his part. You got to do your part. God comes all the way to us and gives us grace, undeserving grace, so that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in alone, plus Say it louder. Again. You don't have to add baptism. You don't have to add church membership. You don't have to put money in the offering plate. It's grace. It's grace. But number two, I said, if we're going to reach this pagan culture and engage people and have opportunities to point them to the truth, we must suffer well. We must suffer well. We have to be ready to suffer well. In fact, not be surprised by it and say, what? That's what's going on in verse 22. And I slowed it down and tried to read it in a way that you'd say, hmm, ooh, ha, hello. Verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter. It doesn't say we might and it doesn't say few. We must through many Tribulation. And the word tribulation in the Greek there just means to be under pressure. To be under pressure, whether it's economic, social, physical, whatever it is, you're under pressure. You're, you've been put under pressure. And it's when we're under pressure, folks, that you have an opportunity. I hope you realize we'll never do it perfectly. Doesn't mean you don't cry. Doesn't mean you don't say it's hard. But, folks, the world should see something different. 
about the way we face cancer and discouragement and unemployment and the death of a child and a bad marriage and, 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 and. That would cause them to say, you can say all day long, oh, Jesus is the answer. It's amazing. Oh, come to my church. But they might ask you when they see, how do you do that? What do you have that I don't have? What do you have? How can you do that? And then, and then you'll have a First Peter 3.15 moment where it says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the, say it louder, hope that you have. We cry. We, we grieve the loss of a child or we're, we're, we're concerned and, and fight fear when we, when we face unemployment. But we have some hope they know nothing about because we're living with eternity in view. This is not our home. We're not living for right here, right now. Grab all the gusto you can. And so they see something different about the way we suffer and go through trials and pressure. And God intended to use it. He never promised Come to Christ and I'll make sure you never get cancer. Never face the death of a child. Never have a bad marriage. Never, never. No, I'll make sure that you're never alone in it. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And my spirit is in you. My word is alive to you. The people of God are around you. You have direct access to my throne with a great high priest, Jesus Christ. You've got resurrection power in you so that something's different about how you suffer. These things matter, folks. We must have a theology of suffering well. It's all through the Bible. It's just there. And he doesn't just use it to bring unbelievers to Christ. You say, well, wow, that's a bummer. He's going to reach lost people, but I have to suffer. Here's the other piece. And in our suffering, he makes us more like who? When Jesus walked this earth, did he suffer? He's our leader. He suffered and we will suffer. And it's never wasted. Your suffering is never wasted if you're a Christian. It's a part of his process of making us more like Jesus. More of him, less of us. More of him, less of us. I feel weaker. I feel more limited. I feel more unable. Yay. Now his power is demonstrated. Most of us enter into the Christian life with way too much of us. He needs less of us, not more. I know, I know the human nature is like, I, I need to be on top of my game. He actually doesn't want us on top of our game. He wants us having a sense of undoneness so that his power and his glory and his grace and his promises shine through us. Well, let me show you a third thing we haven't talked about yet. Number three, you'll need to call people away from the false counterfeit gods of this world. That's what Paul's doing in verse 15 when he says, We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. In other words, I hope you realize this is not a side issue. Paul is putting his finger right on the very heart of our human problem. You realize that? Which is not just that we disobey God, but that we take created things in this world and try to build our, our lives around them and place all of our hopes on them 
so that we would not need God. That's the real heart condition that we have. We're constantly trying to be self-sufficient, autonomous, and we exchange the glory of God, the need for God, for something in this world. If I just get enough of this, if I just have enough of this, I'm going to put my hopes in this. I'm going to build my world around this. I'm going to worship this and prize this and treasure this. And when you do that, you are continually frustrated, continually frustrated in life. Because everything you turn to and everything you trust in and everything you lean on starts to unravel and fall apart. And you blame the people around you for letting you down and you blame the circumstances. But it's because nothing in this world was designed to bear the weight of your hopes and longings and desires. Not even good things. So when you take a good thing, is marriage good? Are children good? I don't mean like good, not sinners. They're sinners. But it's a good gift. Are children a good gift? Is work good? Yes. But when you take a good thing... And you try to turn it into a God thing. Some really bad things start to happen to you and everyone else around you. And the Bible has a word for this. What's the word for this? Putting my hope and my trust and building our world around something other than God. What's the word? Idolatry. Oh, isn't that way back in the Old Testament? We don't have that going on today, do we? Oh, my friends. Yes, we do. It is the human heart condition to substitute something in this world for what only God can do for you. And try to make something else in this world fill you and satisfy you and give you a sense of peace and meaning and purpose and identity. But nothing in this world can do it. Nothing. And so you stay frustrated. Paul uses a word right there in verse 15. For that word useless, some of your translations say worthless, vain, futile. Mine says useless. It's a Greek word that describes something empty, pointless, deceptive, and ineffective. Something empty, something pointless, something deceptive, and something ineffective. Listen to me. Those words will cluster around and cling to the life of any man or woman who decides to chase after something else in this world for their ultimate satisfaction. And hope and peace. You will feel empty. You will think, what's the point? You will feel like you've been deceived. And you'll find that it's ineffective because it can't do for you what you're trying to make it do. Nothing in this world was designed to fully satisfy you. Give you a sense of peace and identity and purpose and meaning. These are the things the human heart longs for. Guess what? Only God can do that. Why? Because unlike aardvarks and golden retrievers, we are created in his image and for his glory. Guess what just happened? In his image, there's your identity. For his glory, there's your purpose. And until you know God through his son, Jesus Christ, you take on false identities and you don't understand who you really are. And until you know God through his son, Jesus Christ, you don't understand your purpose. Don't hear me saying your purpose is for the glory of God. Everyone quit your jobs and become missionaries. And No, please don't. 
you keep being an architect. You keep being a pharmaceutical sales rep. You keep being a social media. You keep being a graphic designer. You keep being a homemaker. You keep being a public school teacher. You keep, keep, keep. But you do it for a new reason. You wake up not saying, I hate this job. And maybe you do. But you're like, I can still do this for the glory of God. I get to be salt and light there for the glory of God. I've got a bigger purpose. I've got something else going on. I've got a new identity. I understand I'm created in the image of God. And if you come to Christ, then you also have the identity that you're in Christ. You're now in Christ. And God sees you as he sees his son. There's an identity. And then there's a purpose. There's a purpose. There's a purpose. I have a reason to get up. I have a reason to live. I have some meaning. Apart from a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, those two things are off the table. And the world chases after something else. And and they recognize some of these things. They recognize the godness in these things. That's why marriage is good. But when you put all your hopes in that, you'll crush it. Children are a good gift. But if you put all your hopes in that, and you're trying to live out your sense of purpose and success and identity and meaning through your kids... News alert, you might have one that's like maybe like the Christ child. Just keep having more. I always say, if you have enough, you'll have one that will rock your ever-living world. (laughs) And will cause you to say, what was I thinking to put my hopes in my children as if I would wake up feeling good about me because of them? I wake up thinking, I am so embarrassed. And not because they're so sinful. It's like, oh, I have to admit, I see me in that. That's a little me running right there. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like, ah, I could go on. His work good. But did he ever intend for you to live for your work and become your work and lose all identity into your work? No, because then when they let you go, you're not just hurt and upset. You're devastated. Because it was your whole world. Your whole world. See, idols always promise more than they can deliver. And she always come up empty and frustrated. Empty and frustrated. In his book, No God But God, Richard Keyes says this, and I quote, The natural human response to the true God after the fall is rebellion and avoidance. Sin predisposes us to want to be independent of God, to be laws unto ourselves or autonomous so that we can do what we want without bowing to his authority. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world. Rather than look to the creator and have to deal with his lordship, we orient our lives towards the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in our desired directions. However, since we were made to relate to God, but do not want to face God, We forever inflate things in this world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. That's what's going on, folks. People keep grabbing things, even good things, and inflating them to religious proportions. I've got another way to put it. People keep taking things in this world and worshiping them. 
So don't make the mistake, say, oh, we just don't have as many worshipers in America. There's not as many people that go to church on Sunday. There are people that worship and people that don't. News alert. Everybody is still worshiping. They've just built altars in front of something else. Everybody is a worshiper. Because we're created in the image of God. We've got this longing for something bigger, something greater, something beyond us, something to put our hopes in, something to, to claim and name my identity in, to become a part of. We inflate things and we worship things other than the one true living God. Tim Keller wisely noted, and I quote, In any culture in which God is largely absent, is God largely absent from our culture today? Yes. In any culture in which God is largely absent, sex, money, and politics will fill the vacuum for many people. Can you not see how these three areas in our country have just exploded to the point of excess and obsession and chaos that is wreaking havoc in the lives of people that are turning to these three areas to try to get them to do what they were never designed to do for them. Sex, money, politics. None of those three things are sinful in and of themselves. Our God actually is a God of order that instituted civil authorities. Politics is not sinful. He gave us order. He gave us structure. He's a God of order. Money is not sinful in and of itself. And news alert, a committee of human men and women did not think of sex. And God thought, oh, what? Okay, if you have to. He thought of it. It's a good gift. All three of these things are good in and of themselves. But when you take any one of them and say, that is what I'm going to live for. And so here's what our world does. When someone goes beyond just, I'm grateful for sex. And I'm thankful. No, I live for sexual pleasure. They call him an addict. I've got another word for that that's biblical. Idolatry. Because when you make it what you live for, it's never enough. I just can't get there. And and oh, by the way, I go off the rails as I try to keep it just fresh. I got to have more. I got to have more. I got money. Money's not sinful. The Love of money. When I say, now that's what I'm going to live for. That makes me secure. That makes me feel like an important person. That gives me identity and worth. And now you're in trouble. Food. Is food a good thing? But when you say, that's where I go for refuge. That's where I turn to when I feel depressed. That's what I do to make myself feel better. I just eat an entire box of Twinkies or a whole half gallon of chocolate ice cream. The world would say, it's an addiction. The Bible would say, idolatry. Alcohol, this may be controversial, not a sin, the Bible doesn't say. Drunkenness is a sin. So when you cease enjoying it in moderation and you go there as a refuge to numb the pain of what you don't have that you wish you had, now the world says, he's an addict, she's an addict, they're an alcoholic. The Bible says, you're idolatrous. This was never meant to satisfy, and the more you go after it, the more empty you feel, the more pointless it seems, the more you go after it, The reason I want to move these labels, folks, is not to be punitive or harsh. When you bring it back to the Bible words, you bring it back to hope. Because our world says, oh, the Bible doesn't talk about addictions. These are addictions. This is a whole different level, Brad. Folks, it's a heart issue. They're going after it and trying to get it to do what it was never designed to do. It's idolatry. And the hope is the gospel and the power is the resurrection and God's spirit can help you in all those situations. 
You go into it for the wrong reason and it enslaves you. What you thought would fulfill you enslaves you. You think about it. Even in our culture right now with materialism, greed, I hope you realize, greed is not the ultimate explanation for the epidemic level of materialism we see in America. You realize? Idolatry is what's at the root. You say, what do you mean, Brad? Folks, idolatry is what explains the excessive emphasis on success and materialism. Because the more people move away from God, the more people will have to move towards something else and inflate something else to do for them what it was never designed to do. And the culture's never going to call it false worship or idolatry. But sometimes, I love it when I run across articles, sometimes they do see the problem and recognize some of the pain and destruction it's wreaking in the lives of people. And they'll call it obsession. In an article titled Success Excess, she's not a Christian. Harriet Rubin says this, quote, Of all the subjects we obsess about, success is the one we lie about the most. That success and its cousin money will make me secure. That success and its cousin power will make me important. That success and its cousin fame will make me happy. It's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money, power, and glory. And then self-destructing. Maybe they didn't want it in the first place. Eh, that's not true. Oh, they wanted it. But listen to what she says next. Or they didn't like what they saw when they finally achieved it. Ding, 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 ding. In other words, you understand what she's saying? And it's what the Bible teaches They finally arrived and got what they thought they were going after and found it was empty, still pointless. They felt like they'd been deceived and it wasn't working to do for them what they meant for it to do. Some of the, I mean, I hope you're aware of this, some of the most unhappy people. Why do we have all the Hollywood stars and all the musicians and all the athletes who are millionaires in and out of rehab? Why do you need to do drugs in a hotel after you've got thousands of people just screaming your name, which is what the human heart thinks it wants, and then you've got to snort cocaine to be able to go to sleep and pop something else to be able to wake up and do it again? These people are destroying themselves, the ones who have what the rest of our land thinks would make them happy. Here's what's going on. Believe it or not, it's not the best motive in the world. The average human being keeps moving forward in in life Because they say, I just don't have what they have yet. But when I do, I'll be happy. And it keeps them going. The people who get it are the ones that find out, oh, dear me. I'm still empty. It's still pointless. I'm going to kill myself. The most unhappy people are the ones who have it. Because that's the lie that this could or would satisfy. But it doesn't. It doesn't because success and money can never fill the God-shaped void that's inside of every human being. Never mind money. 
What about politics? Oh, dear me. Yes, I said that word. Is that not a hot topic today? Hot, 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 hot. Ooh. What in the world is going on? I mean, politics have always been controversial. But folks, this is a whole new level. What is going on? I hope you realize idolatry is what is at the root of this massive polarization and hate that is being slung back and forth. You know, you read articles like, well, there's a lack of bipartisanship and there's just a loss of civility and and diplomacy in the political arena. Yeah, there is. But you still haven't said why. You're just diagnosing and saying, well, it looks like we've lost bipartisanship and it looks like no one's civil or diplomatic anymore like they used to be. You still haven't said why. Let me tell you why. Idolatry is at the root of how it became so polarized and so hateful. Because we used to, I hope you realize, this is going to shock some of you, but that's okay, I like doing that. I hope you realize we used to have millions of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, who worshipped, yes folks, worshipped God and trusted in Almighty God Even though they would say, as they leaned on their farm fence, I'm a Democrat, always vote Democrat. And the other one says, I'm a Republican, always vote Republican. But they both worshiped God and ultimately trusted in Almighty God. What we have today are millions of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, who no longer worship God or trust in Almighty God. The problem is not a lack of bipartisanship and civility and diplomacy. It's a lack of real worship and a loss of trust in Almighty God. And in both these camps, what breaks my heart is there are Christian Republicans and Democrat Republicans who are acting just like the world. And I want to smack you. If you go to my church, it's like, what is your problem? Oh my God. It shows they have placed their hope and staked their very lives and their sense of desires and longings on that political party. So that if their party isn't in power, they go nuts. Think about how often now today, both sides, you hear it. When, when the other wins, there's all these threats that we're going to leave America. We're going to leave America. They never do. Go on to Cuba. Yeah, let me know how that is. They don't, but they go on and on and on. I can't even live here. I can't stay here. What? What is going on? Why did it get to this level? Because that political party or position is where their very hopes are for all they're longing for. Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, insightfully points this out. He says, quote, One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. You do realize, I hope, that even though America still has one of the highest qualities of life in any nation, the best health care in almost any nation, the most opportunities in almost any nation, It's the best country to be poor in, in almost any nation. Yet we have epidemic levels of people who are panicky and anxious. Off the charts. Off the charts. What is going on? It's idolatry. Their hope isn't where it should have been to begin with. 
I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but you guys, we used to just go to college and find out, ooh, wow, this is harder than high school. And so we just studied harder. And now we've just got this entire young generation just melting down like snowflakes. Oh, my goodness, I can't, I can't, I can't do the call. I'm so stressed out. I can't, I can't, I can't. So they're all on anxiety meds, and they're all on anti-fear, panic meds. And it's like, but what it really is, you guys, is their hope is tied to performance and achievement and success and perfectionism, and what if I can't, and what if I don't, and I'm not sure, and so I am so anxious. Fear is one of the characteristics that something has become, and something in your life is in a place it shouldn't be. Now, don't hear me saying those kind of meds are sinful in and of themselves. Please do hear me say, if you think you can get a prescription and that will solve that, I would encourage you to think differently. If it helps you settle down enough that you can think straight and consider, where am I connecting the dots wrong? Where am I putting my hope in the wrong place? Where am I not trusting God? Where am I not resting in God? Where have I started to worship at an altar of something else? Because you'll just spend a lifetime of adjusting meds and this one used to work and now it doesn't. Now I've got side effects. I've got to get off that. It's the heart. It's the heart. What are you trusting? What are you resting in? What are you wanting? What are you making your identity? He says one of the things that is a sign that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes the chief characteristic of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way. So see this whole college thing. If my success and me being so great is what I live for... You head, you head into college and you feel threatened. Let me tell you, go on to grad school. It's like, oh my goodness, now I have one class that was 15 books for one class. Whole new level of like, ha! Ah, thought I was smart. Now there's really smart people here. Just, it's like, the counterfeit God is threatened. Our response is complete panic. We do not just say, what a shame, how difficult. But rather... This is the end. There is no hope. This may be the reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They've put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death and a poisonous environment is created. Do we not have a poisonous environment? Yeah. How'd that happen? Idolatry. You say, Brad, okay, that was quite the rant. What's your point? Because I hope you realize it's not like so. I hope those people out there somewhere who've put their hope in politics would quit doing that. No, here's my concern. Often it's Christians who want to say, what is your problem? Get involved. Yes. So, so just like how I, two weeks ago, I pressed you, suffer well. Here's my point today. Get informed, read up, study, decide who you think would lead us best. Vote. And then shut your ever living mouth and shut down your keyboard and sleep well. 
Because even if your party is not in control, you know your God is in control and that you're part of an unshakable kingdom that can't be voted in or out or up or down because King Jesus is ruling and reigning and is seated on his throne. That's where your security and hope and peace is supposed to be. Bring it back to Jesus, people. So don't hear what I'm not saying. We need Christians right in that poisonous mess. But if you can't be joyful and civil and calm and another one that people say, how do you do this? Get out and let other Christians get in there and represent us. Because it's a bad testimony. You make Jesus look bad. You make Jesus look sad. Let others do it if you can't do it joyfully and peacefully and calmly without running around screaming and slinging hate over political issues just like the world. We are supposed to be different. Because we know from Philippians 3, I'm a citizen of another kingdom. I love America, yes. But folks, I get much more excited about, I don't know where America's head, America, I don't know where America is headed. But that's not, that's not what determines how well I sleep. I know where I'm headed. And I know who King Jesus is. And I've read the last book of the Bible. We win. There's going to be a new heaven, new earth. There will be justice all across the land. And people will see the beauty and glory of our Savior. And there'll be no more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. And it's coming. We get to live as aliens, strangers, pilgrims, foreigners in a temporary land. You're not home. You're not home. You're not home. But I want you to notice how our message doesn't just call people away from the false gods of this world. Number four, you need to call people back to the one true living God. That's what Paul's doing in verses 15 to 17 where he talks about the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, all things that are in them, who did not leave himself without a witness that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. What is Paul doing? Why is he pointing to creation as evidence of a true God? Well, he gives us a fuller explanation in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, that I think I put in your bulletin. Is it in your bulletin? Creation itself, folks, it declares there's a God. So let me help you here. I know we live in a land and a day now that's just much more higher percentage of people say, oh, I don't believe in God. Oh, I'm an atheist. Oh, I don't believe in God. Let me encourage you. Talk to people about God who say they don't believe in God. Because God doesn't believe in atheists. All right? He knows they know there's a God because he put it in their heart and he showed it to them through creation. That's what Romans 1, 18 and following is talking about. Look at it, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are barely seen. Clearly seen. How, how do we know him? Being understood from what has been made. So that men are, oh, say the two words. No one will stand before God and say, I, I didn't know. Uh, there's just no way I could have known there was a God. Did you ever think about this? 
The Bible, God says he's given us everything for life and God. The Bible has no big book defending the existence of God. In a day now that is just so, oh, prove to me there's God. Prove to me there's God. Seems like there'd be an entire book. Defense on the existence of God. Start there before you try to talk about Jesus and share the gospel because you've got to get that in place. Why is it missing? Why does God waste no paper, no ink, no time on defending the existence of God? Because he knows that they know there's a God. People know more about God than they'd like to admit, folks. And so God says, that's what just begins, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God. Now, what he knows they don't know, which is why the Bible is put together, is who is this God? What is he like? I could never figure that out from a waterfall or a mountain or a stream or a trout. And who am I in light of this God? And what has he done for me in spite of who I am? All that is where the Bible spends its time. You know there's a God, but oh, here's who he is. And I know you can tell there's something different about you. You have this longing for purpose and meaning and identity. Here's who you are. You're created in the image of God. And you know that no matter how hard you try, you got this sense that you fail and that you fail and you're not all you wish you. Yeah, it's called sin. And he sent his son to die for you to solve your biggest problem. That's where the Bible spends its time. People know more about God than they want to admit. So talk about God to people who say they don't believe in God. Because they know there is a God. Number five as I close. Take heart. Take heart that we still have today what the early church had that rocked this world. Too often when Christians do read the book of Acts, and I love it. I love the book of Acts. But they make a mistake. They get all wound up about miracles and signs and wonders. And they're like, oh my goodness, if we had more of that going on today, if there was more miracles and signs and wonders going on, there'd be more people coming to faith in Christ. It's because we don't have the supernatural. We need snowflakes dropping out of the the air vents. We need feathers blowing around. We need limbs being grown back. We need blind eyes being opened. Let me help you here. Read the book of Acts. Every time someone did a miracle, some people believed and some people did not. That's what happened in Acts 14. In verses 3 to 5, it says, And the Spirit was pleased to do signs and wonders through them. Verse 4. But the multitude was divided and some sided with the apostles and some with, I mean, divided hostily so that they tried to abuse them and stone them so that they fled. Verse four doesn't say, oh, my goodness, when they saw signs and wonders, everybody believed and was fully convinced in Jesus and the gospel. Never. Miracles and signs and wonders have never been the silver bullet That leads multitudes to Christ. It's never been the source of true revival. It's always been the spirit of God. Making the word of God. Powerful. Among the people of God. To share it with lost people. It's the word of God that has power. It's when the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes. And unstops deaf ears. To hear the good news of the gospel. And to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Don't go around thinking. Oh I wish I could do something supernatural. That would 
cause my friend to listen to the message. I'll tell you what supernatural has to happen. The Holy Spirit has to take out that heart of stone and open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. Just keep sharing this glorious, powerful message and keep pointing to this gorgeous, beautiful Savior and let the Holy Spirit do what only He can do. But we get to do what they were always doing. I hope you realize when you read through the book of Acts... The apostles were not this traveling band of miracle workers. They didn't go into cities and do miracles and then preach the gospel. They went into cities and preached the gospel. And sometimes the Holy Spirit was pleased to do miracles through them. The focus was always the gospel, preaching the gospel, the word of God, not the miracles. So we have, if God wants to do miracles, bring it. But there's nothing we're doing wrong. When I hear people say, what is the church missing to do? What are we not doing right? What are we? And I read articles also. So I know in other countries sometimes there's more supernatural today happening. That is the sovereign choice of God. We can't make supernatural stuff here happen. If God wants to help me cause my observer and counseling levitate, I would love that night. You know, you read these stories where, you know, the witch doctor in the village has got some girl spinning in the air and God enables this little Indian evangelist with his bicycle to cause his friend to spin in the air. Yay, God, but not the evangelist. What does he have that we don't have? I'm not against it, folks, but you can't make it happen. God does that. In the meantime, do what they were all doing and we have what they had, the word of God and the spirit of God in us, in us. Share the word, share the word, share the word. Point people to Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to point out a passage that I think captures well Paul's focus where Paul was saying, I want you to turn away from the futile, useless things of this world and to the living God in his son, Jesus Christ. You find it in Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Where Paul's writing the believers and he says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart where? On things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand, set your mind where? Can, can believers who have been saved, had their biggest problems solved, still go on and set their hearts and their minds right here? Yes. Yes. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's your security. Job loss can't take that away. Health loss, cancer can't do anything about it. Loss of best friend can't do anything about that. Political change in Washington can't do There's security. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then look what he says. When Christ who is your life appears. Then you also will be made like him. How would you finish that sentence for yourself? It should be when Christ, who is my life, if it's my children are my life, my grandchildren are my life, my vocation is my life, my health, my. When Christ, who is our life. If you're frustrated today, Stop thinking all the people around you are just failing you so miserably and your circumstances are so, such a bummer and you've just been dealt a bad hand. You, maybe you have. But tell you what makes it far worse. If you have set your heart and mind 
on the things of this world. And if you are turning to and leaning on and trusting in even good things too much, you will be frustrated. Empty, pointless, deceptive, ineffective. Center your life and heart and longings and hope and security in who you are in Christ and what you get to live for, the glory of God. You can glorify God in your failures. You realize that? In your weakness. Oh God, thank you for your word in not just saving us, but helping us understand what life is about and helping us reorient ourselves away from this world and to you and helping us to hold loosely to the things of this world and be grateful for them and enjoy them, but not build our lives around them, not inflate them to religious proportions. Oh God, keep us worshiping the one true living God and trusting in almighty God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.